Psalm 85, verse 4 through 7. Reading out of the NASB this morning. Uh, when you get there, let's, let's just all stand together as we listen to the word of the Lord. Let's stand together. And then we'll pray together. Starting in verse 4. Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your indignation towards us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not yourself revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we ask today that you might pour out your spirit upon us, that the posture of our hearts might match the posture of our bodies, upright and alert in anticipation of your holy word. We pray that as we open up your word, you would open up our heart and our spiritual eyes to receive a word of the Lord this morning. We've come here for you. Pray that you would pour yourself out in Jesus' name. Let's all just pray together the way Jesus taught us to pray. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Hallelujah. Before I talk about the psalm, I want to tell you a, a quick story about a man by the name of Dwight L. Moody, famous evangelist and preacher from a, another year. One day was invited uh, by a, a church to preach in London when he was visiting that city. He was uh, invited to preach a couple times that day. And he tells a story, uh, as quoted by Ian e. Bounds, that he, he shows up at this church and he begins to preach the gospel. And almost immediately from the very outset, there was this dark, uh, heavy sense in the room. He, he described it as preaching to an ice chamber. Uh, the spiritual climate of the building was almost dead. There was nothing going on. There, there was no life. There was no joy. There was no reception. He felt like he was speaking to a wall. He left that morning uh, saying, I, I never want to go back to that place. That was perhaps one of the worst, uh, worst experiences, uh, experiences uh, preaching the gospel that I've ever had in my life. He went home and he started to take a nap and he realized that he had to go back there that evening. And reluctant to preach at this, this church in which the ground was so hard, it was so rocky, it was so sturdy, people were unreceptive. He, he just fought this urge to just, just get on a plane and go back to, uh, go back to his, his home. But he, he, he ended up going that night at least out of obligation to his prior commitment and his promise. And he shows up and he tells a story that uh, as soon as he shows up in the pulpit that night, the atmosphere was tangibly different. 
It was as if there was an anticipation in the air. There was a, a holy anticipation, a buzz. There was a reception to the things of God. There was a holy excitement. He didn't know what it was, but it was completely different than that morning. It was the same people, same building, same preacher. But there was something different in the spiritual climate that he couldn't quite put his finger on, and so he preached. As he began to preach, there was this, uh, there was this escalation of, the, of uh, a desire for the things of God, and he felt it. And so at the end of his sermon, he thought uh, that he might maybe be able to ask uh, and give a, a gospel call. He sensed that it was, it was time for that, and it was appropriate. And so he asked everybody in the building, hey, if you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you want to follow Christ for the rest of your life, Stand up right now. Instantly, 500 people stood to their feet. Moody thought there was some mistake because he was there that morning, you know what I'm saying? So he told everybody, oh, okay, sit back down. I'm gonna try. In his mind, he was, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this over. They must have mis- mistook what I said. And so he laid out the gospel again. He said, if anyone wants to receive uh, Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, why don't you stand up? Immediately, the same 500 people stood to their feet. This thing. 500 people stood to their feet. Moody was confused. He thought, maybe they are mistaking what I'm saying. Maybe they're thinking I'm going to give them something. I don't know what they're thinking, but this can't be the same church I was at this morning. So he told them to sit down again. And a third time he presented the gospel, but this time articulating and mulling over every single word and simplifying to make sure they knew what they were getting themselves into. He laid out the gospel in childlike terms. The same 500 people stood to their feet and accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior as the Spirit of God rushed into that room and changed life after life after life, and Dwight L. Moody was dumbfounded. But here's what Moody didn't know. Here's the backstory. See, earlier that morning when he preached, the, uh, when he preached that morning in that church in London, one of the ladies there, the parishioners, went back to her home uh, where her bedridden sister was waiting and told her the news. Hey, Dwight L. Moody came to church. Isn't that awesome? And the sister was just horrified. She said, I have been praying my whole life for Dwight L. Moody to come to this city. Why didn't you tell me? I would have spent all of last evening and all of this morning in prayer for souls. You know what, big sis, get out of my way, lock the door. I will be praying all afternoon and all evening for tonight's service. Ian Bounds goes on to say, and so while Mr. Moody stood in the pulpit that had been like an ice chamber in the morning, the bedridden saint was holding him up before God, and God, whoever delights to answer prayer, poured out his spirit in mighty power. It wasn't D.L. Moody. It wasn't that church. It certainly wasn't London. It was the prayers of one single saint who couldn't even roll out of bed that morning. The reason I bring this up is because as we have closed last week, the summer of the Spirit, speaking about all the mighty things that the Holy Spirit does, when he pours himself out, we have largely seen how the Holy Spirit pours himself out on individuals. And it's been, it's been wonderful, right? 
I've been so, uh, it's been so sweet for me to just sit back uh, in a chair and just receive and just to learn about what the Holy Spirit does in the lives of people who call out on him. But largely, we've seen how the Holy Spirit works in individuals. For what? Like the gift of prophecy, for the gift of faith, for the gift of regeneration, for all of these things that we have gone through all summer, the Holy Spirit working in individuals for the edification of the whole church, yes, but the power lying in that individual as the Holy Spirit blesses a single person or individual people for the betterment of the church and for the glory of God. But did you know that there are unique situations where the Holy Spirit is poured out not on a couple people, not on one or two, not even on five, but on entire groups of people at the same time. There are unique situations where the Holy Spirit is poured out not on one speaker, not on one usher, not on one person praying for a group of people, but on entire churches at the same time. Even entire cities. And sprinkled throughout history, a couple places here and there, we even see that happening on entire nations. They're unique. It doesn't happen every day, but it happens And the church over the years have learned to call these extraordinary events revivals. I want to talk to you today about revival. I'm taking a line from Psalm 85. This is the title of the sermon today called Revive Us Again. Because, truth be told, I want what I see in the scriptures and what I've seen throughout history to handle, uh, to happen to the city of Santa Barbara, and I believe a lot of you do too. What I wanna do today is to at least tap the surface of what a revival is, what a revival does, why we should want one, and what it's gonna cost you. But first, Psalm 85. Psalm 85, uh, before the section we start to read makes sense, and. it's, it's a lament. You know, do you ever get confused when you're reading through the Psalms and you have that kind of lingo that's like always praise God in season and out of season and exalt the Lord and just give thanks even in suffering. And then you come across a Psalm and David's just like, I hate my life. Lord, you have forsaken me and my enemies crush their teeth. Ah! And then you're waiting for the, the holy punchline where he like exalts the Lord and it just ends. And you're like, oh, that doesn't feel right. <laughs> Well, those psalms that you're looking at that look like big complaints aren't really complaints. The better word for it is, an, is a lament. It's a, it's a psalmist just being crushed over the situation at hand, saying there's something wrong about the situation in which I live. That's kind of a broad way to look at it. it uh, but there's something wrong. There's something not right that needs to be made right. And you always, almost always see in those laments, it doesn't end there. It might have this overall tenor of just like depression and just angst, but there's a a flavor in there, in that distress, that turns into an expression of trust in God. And that's what Psalm 85 is. It's a group of people that are aware of their sin. They're aware of the punishment over their sin, uh, which has often been exile, uh, being pulled into 
uh, slavery to other nations. And they're recognizing that and they're lamenting over it in the midst of it, saying, God, will you uh, turn your back on us forever? It's a rhetorical question. Of course you won't. And there comes their expression of trust in God in verse 6. Will you, not yourself, revive us again? Will you revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Notice that they're not saying, will you, uh, will you abandon us forever? Like we haven't even done anything wrong. No, they fully take on the blame throughout the psalm, especially in the first half. They rather, they say, will you abandon us forever? No, of course you won't. Will you revive us and teach us again about your loving kindness? Show us how to rejoice in you. We've lost track of our first love. We've lost track of those things that we've grown up our entire lives knowing. We need you to step in and remind us how good that was again. Their heart cry is essentially revive us, or literally in the Hebrew, make us alive to you. We are in some sense dead to you. Make our hearts come back alive. This has always been the appropriate heart cry of God's covenant people throughout the centuries. When we have turned from him, or when we have distanced ourselves, or when we have latched on to the comforts of this life, or when we have lost sight of him, or when we simply just wanted more. That's always been the appropriate prayer to pray. Lord, will you revive us again? And he has always been faithful to his people to say, well, yes. I'm glad you asked. He does this in a variety of ways, but as we look through the scriptures and through history, the best answer that God seems to give, the one he holds out on and he just loves to just open up, it's his canon, if that's what you call it. It's the canon in God's arsenal, is to pour out revival. There was a writer by the name of Elmer Towns who studied uh, many of the world's greatest revivals throughout the the centuries, going all the way back to Pentecost, studying uh, all of them next to each other. And he came up with this book in which he determines by this crazy criteria what the, the, the top 10 revivals throughout the centuries are, from Pentecost to present. And as he's looking at some of the most longest lasting ones, some of the most amazing ones that had the most fruit, that uh, changed the world in the most dramatic ways, he looked at all of them and he looked at uh, what the fruit of each of them was and he came up with this description. It's really long, uh, but I want you to look at the first sentence especially. He says, a revival, if we were to look at all of them, including the Bible, to see what they all entail, what they have in common with each other, a revival is an extraordinary work of God in which Christians repent of their sins as they become intensely aware of his presence. That sounds like it to me. Of course, he goes on. He just can't stop speaking. And his extraordinary works. And they manifest a positive response to God in renewed obedience to the known will of God, resulting in both the deepening of their individual and corporate experience with God and an increased concern to win others to Christ. You see, I feel like Elmer Towns looked at the revivals and looked at the works of God and they could not be expressed in like five syllables because when God is on the move, it gets crazy, man. So Elmer Towns, big old paragraph, but I think we can at least latch on at least to that first phrase. 
It's an extraordinary work of God in which Christians repent of their sins as they become intensely aware of his presence. And the rest is just the fruit of that. This happens in some measure in the Old Testament. It's not like there's the Old Testament and then the New Testament and then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit is born. No, the Holy Spirit is working throughout all of history. He's God, right? But he works in a special way. You see, in the Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit coming on specific people for specific times. He'll come on Moses for a specific task. He'll come on Joshua. He'll come on uh, some prophetess. He'll come on a people like that in certain ways and in certain times. What we see after the day of Pentecost is the Holy Spirit coming on everybody. Coming on everybody. And in a deeper measure, at that time and after, uh, keep your finger in the Psalms, but turn with me to Acts chapter 2 where we see this first happening in chapter 2, verse 4. Many of you know this passage, but it's fun to read. We'll just start at the top. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a rushing, a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. It comes on all of the church in an extraordinary way. But it doesn't stop there. You see, Pentecost wasn't this single event that would never be repeated. There's certain elements of it that were unique, but we see certain patterns reappearing throughout the book of Acts. Look at, uh, at the end of chapter 2 in verse 41 and 47. We just read what Town said. It's an extraordinary work of God in which Christians repent of their sins as they become intensely aware of his presence. Extraordinary works. They manifest a a positive response, a a renewed obedience, a deepening of their individual experience of God, and an increased concern to win others for Christ. Look at what Acts says in chapter 2, verse 41. So then those who had received his word, Peter, as he was preaching, were baptized And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Take that, Moody. Verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. It keeps going. Look at verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. A sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. We see the same thing happening at the end of chapter 2. And we see a a particular thing. We see at least a few things always happening, right? We see the presence of God. 
Wherever there's a revival, we see the presence of God amidst his people. We saw that in Acts chapter 2. We see it uh, in verse uh, 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe as God was working. We also see that the church, whenever there's reviving, the church is unified around a common mission for go- uh, with God. They're unified around a singular course. We see that in verse 42. Uh, where it says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayer. And in verse 44, all those who believed were together. Look at this unity that's happening. Okay, this is so important for us to see because it's not one radical person living faithfully for God while all of us are cheering that person. It's everybody being caught in the current of what the Holy Spirit is doing. That's a revival. Everybody gets caught up in the current, or at least the the critical mass. And it goes on. And all those who believed were together. All things they had in common. They began selling their property, possessions, were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day to day, continuing with one mind. It's beautiful. There also seems to be an increase in love. They began selling their possessions and property and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And of course, we see again uh, an increase, not just in love, but in numbers. Verse 47, they were having favor with all the people and the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Turn a few chapters to Acts chapter nine. We see the same thing, but in one verse. Lest you think that there's a part of Pentecost that kind of trails off into oblivion, it seems to keep going and going and going. At least these elements that we're talking about. Verse 31, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. There it is again. The presence of God, the presence of God in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We see this church unified and staying on course. They were enjoying peace. They were being built up together. They were going on. There was a continual increase as the Lord was adding to their number day by day and they were being built up in the love of God. We could at least say, okay, there there probably is more to revival than this, but we can at least say, just for Working terminology, something to sink our teeth in. That when there is a revival, we can see in an extraordinary fashion God's presence alive in a church. We can see God's church singular-minded and on course, and we can see a continual increase in what? Love and salvation. We can at least say those three things. I think it's more than that, but we can at least say those three things. And it's extraordinary. It's something that grabs your attentions. It's something that grabs the headlines. This is something, historically, those effects that manifest throughout the church in history. Pick a revival. I'll pick one of my favorites, the Great Awakening in the 18th century. This was birthed in a couple places, but specifically in one small town. I think it was in uh, East Connecticut or something Connecticut. Connecticut's like the size of Carpinteria, so whatever, east, west, north, south. Northampton, the city of Northampton, where a young man by the name of Jonathan Edwards was pastoring and preaching. 
a writer by the name of uh, Samuel Blair wrote about the spiritual condition because this is usually something you see on the eve of a revival too. There's a drought, a spiritual drought. That's why revival comes. He comes to revive the drought. It was written of the spiritual drought of the uh, 1740s, and I quote, religion lay, as it were, dying and ready to expire its last breath of life in this part of the visible church. It's completely dying. Edwards was very famous for preaching against sin. He had a famous sermon by the name of uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which is terrifying. Don't read it. It's really good, though. (laughs) Not because he wanted to be that sin sniffer, not even because he wanted people to become more moralistic, but because he knew. He was so big on enjoying God, on being satisfied in God. He knew that sin was simply a diagnosis of a spiritual longing that only God could meet. And so he was always tackling sin. This sin and that, you gotta put it away. You've gotta go to God. He was concerned with his spiritual well-being, knowing that there was a deep spiritual longing in his hometown in Northampton. Prayer meetings would start, the gospel would preach, people would long for the presence of God, and I don't know where it was at or how many people got that longing, but at a certain, situ- at a certain year in the 1700s, the spirit of God fell upon a tiny little cottage church. And it expanded there throughout the colonies, crossed oceans, changed nations. I was reading some of the history books on this revival and they're like really cute, like some of the things people say. (laughs) Like one person writes, the most promiscuous woman in town was converted and then she told her friends. Another person wrote, the the youth of the community were uh, uh, used to just be all about reveling and frolicking and dancing and now they're not, they've been freed from it. It's just funny what they wrote about in the 1700s. Like that was their big sin back in the day, dancing, okay. Whatever the case may be, people who were caught in sexual addiction, some of the worst in the city, who wouldn't even be caught in a church, rushed into church to testify about God. It was written that the youth of the community were more free than they had been in 60 years. The town exhibited better better morals. The church members showed higher regard for scripture, and I quote, and kept the Sabbath. Not only that church in Northampton, but it was written that 32 other towns experienced that same revival, not just that one church. It caught fire. Jonathan Edwards would look at this as he was pastoring that church where uh, all the kind of the beacon of it, where that took place. He would just simply look around and he would document it and he wrote a sermon called The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God in which he would outline, okay, this is certainly God doing this. What do I see coming out of this? What is unique? What is the fruit of this? And he would write out at least five things. He said, out of this revival, I see an esteem for Jesus Christ. I see a disgust for sin. I see a regard for scripture, a high regard for scripture. I see a desire for holiness, and I see an increase in love. That's what he wrote. Looking at all of this for three years, a three-year-long revival, these are the five things that I see the most. This is what happens in a revival, quoting Jonathan Edwards. 
an esteem for Jesus, a hatred for sin, a love for the scriptures, a desire for God's holiness, and an increase in love. This is almost exactly what we just saw in the book of Acts. It should be no surprise then when we see this pattern repeating itself during subsequent outpourings. We see churches starving for God's presence and God willing and delighting in pouring himself out at their request. Year 1906, a man by the name of William Seymour moves, uh, I believe, from his church in Louisiana, disheartened over the lifelessness of his worship. Hearing rumors that people were speaking in tongues, people were filled with the Spirit, and it was causing something to happen in their hearts, and he didn't have that, and he desperately wanted it. He moved to Los Angeles, sent by his home church, and he hosted a prayer meeting, and he, didn't, he wasn't even baptized or filled with the Spirit, but he was preaching from a podium saying, I don't have it, but I heard it's out there, so church, let's ask for it. And he would preach, and he didn't have it, and people were amused. Who's this guy preaching to us about this thing that he doesn't have? But he was so excited over it. He had this zeal for it. He had this unction for it that they got caught up in the current, and they said, yes, Lord, save us from dead religion. Save us from going through the motions. Save us from wasting our lives. And the Spirit of God fell. They were meeting in a tiny little home, A bunch of people started to come. They met on the porch until the porch collapsed. They realized, well, we got to find ourselves a building. So they rented out a building on Azusa Street that became known as the Azusa Street Revival. In that, we see the same thing. We see the presence of Jesus Christ. We see increase, not only from Azusa Street, but from what Azusa Street caused all around the world. It was said that in two years' time, they estimate about 1.5 million conversions because one man was unsatisfied with dead religion. We see in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and even our own history in our nation, even in our state, Azusa Street, (laughs) that God's covenant people sometimes, often, grow cold and apathetic to him. And it's his loving mercy and his loving kindness to revive their hearts when they return to him and they call out. He delights in it. He delights in it. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. We've seen all summer how the Holy Spirit works in individuals. This is a work of the Holy Spirit upon whole churches. Many churches, many cities, even nations This is entirely a work of the Holy Spirit of God. It does not happen by me turning up the volume during worship. It does not happen by me speaking loudly, even though I'm speaking loudly. It doesn't happen by by switching that button in your heart, whatever that button is, let me know when you find it. It doesn't happen by doing any of those things. We just can't bring revival. It is the powerful, extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit coming down from heaven upon earth not us coming up to heaven to reach for it. However, listen, the Holy Spirit does seem to require a certain posture of his church when he comes down. He's completely willing and delighted 
to fall afresh upon the church, but he desires and requires a certain posture are on end, on our end. You might be surprised what that posture is. Isaiah 57, verse 14 through 15. It shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You want to know what the Holy Spirit requires, the inward posture of your heart, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise, David said in Psalm 51. You will not deny. Think about that for a moment. Just imagine the heart of God. I cannot deny you when you're broken. (laughs) I just can't deny my little kid just coming at me, just arms wide open. Have you ever felt that as a father? Any of you fathers or mothers with kids? Like just, ah. Like when my daughter's biting me and like slapping me and just like screaming at me when she does all of those things, I still love her, but it's like, okay, Holy Spirit or something. But then there's those, then there's those moments where she just like curls her little lip, you know, and her Big fat cheeks like roll over the sides of her jaws and she goes like this. And I will do anything. I'll do anything. That seems to be the heart of God when we come at him with need and brokenness. God, I need you. Don't leave me to the devices of my own broken, selfish heart. Which is why the church should be accustomed to saying with the psalmist, revive us again. Ian Bounds, on this posture, also desiring revival in his own day, wrote that all revivals are dependent on God, but in revivals, as in other things, he invites and requires the assistance of man or woman, and the full result is obtained when there is cooperation between the divine and the human. In other words, to employ a familiar phrase, God alone can save the world, but God chooses not to save the world alone. God and man unite for the task, the response of the divine being invariably in proportion to the desire and the effort of the human. Now I want to clarify that this is not talking about salvation, right? He's not saying in direct proportion to your desire and effort, I'll save you. No, this is assuming you're saved. It's not talking about salvation, but revival, but a pouring out to be refreshed, meaning you are saved by grace, but it could be said that your experience of that salvation is dependent upon your pressing in. God views you the same whether you press in or not, but your experience of all of those blessings and that reward depends on your posture towards God, and he is blessed to pour himself out on you. To overflowing. Many of you know this passage that was written to Israel in 2 Chronicles 7.14 takes on the same type of posture. 
If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Just as God would speak to his covenant people in Israel that if you will posture yourself from a place of need and brokenness, I am willing to come to your rescue. So he would say today in 2013, People, if you would but notice your need for a tremendous outpouring of the Holy Spirit, I would give to you more than you could imagine. And out of that come things like an extraordinary view of Christ and his glory. A profound, weighty, heavy sense of our sin. That's the kind of thing that changes whole cities is that people, not even in church, but people down State Street, people in restaurants, people getting their oil changed, people on their way to sin, people in the bar life on thirsty Thursdays, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit manifesting this heavy sense of their sin and they fall to their knees convicted saying, is there a God who will save me? That's what I'm talking about. And that's what revival brings. It brings a holy regard for scripture, for wherever the Holy Spirit is, there is his word. There's a a desire for holiness. Not only are believers together unified, desperate to be healed of their sin, but they're also hungry for the righteousness of God. There's also an increase in love, generosity, giving self-sacrificial behavior towards one another and the non-believer. It should be no surprise that these things are manifest. And so we should be able to say, okay, if that's the fruit of a revival, if that's at least the fruit, then if we don't see these workings of the Holy Spirit in a tremendous and extraordinary way, we should be unsatisfied. Of course we see a love for Scripture. Many of us love reading the Bible. We're growing in it. I love reading the Bible. Many of us hate our sin. We want to be freed from it. Many of us are being sanctified. uh, uh, Many of us love Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. We could say all five of those things are happening right now. But remember, revival is extraordinary. It's not a few of us doing that. It is an, it's an extraordinary explosion of all of those things in such a way that you have to look at what's going on and say, whoa, as the, as the apostles in Acts chapter uh, two and four, they had this sense of awe, like really? This is incredible. So if these things are not happening tremendously and extraordinarily by the Holy Spirit in spades, We should be unsatisfied and we should be praying for it to happen. Revive us again, Lord. See, here's the problem. At least you can decide for yourself whether it's your problem. I know it's my problem. Is that we should be unsatisfied with the lack of these things happening. But truth be told, I'm pretty satisfied. Truth be told, many of us are pretty satisfied, and why wouldn't we? Look at where we live. (laughs) Many of us would not want a true revival if it were actually to come, because a lot of times, revivals are painful. 
Because it doesn't just involve God pouring himself out. It involves God purging and pruning and cutting away. And we have a lot of stuff in the city of Santa Barbara that we don't want cut away. I do. Santa Barbara is a very comfortable place for a Christian to live. Santa Barbara is a wonderful place to live. I don't ever want to leave this town. I read on the news, uh, I think it was the Santa Barbara Independent, that this year 22 cruise ships are scheduled to come into the docks compared to like six or seven last year, meaning that the rest of the world also recognizes how wonderful the city of Santa Barbara is. If you want to relax, if you want to be comfortable, if you just want to enjoy life, why wouldn't you come here? It's got the most beautiful and perfect Mediterranean weather. The dining is unparalleled, the highest number of restaurants per capita of any city in the country. You could eat at a different spot every night for 18 months straight. And you should. Westmont, UCSB, Santa Barbara City College, Brooks Institute of Photography, and the list goes on, world-class education, events galore. You want to talk about culture, the Santa Barbara International Film Festival, Solstice, Fourth of July, Old Spanish Days and Fiesta, the Avocado Festival, uh, Distant South, Rods and Roses, First Thursdays, and movie nights at the courthouse, roll down with your Bob and your kid and watch a movie in the grass and look up at the star. Like, you could go on for days about how wonderful it is to live here and you should thank God that you get to live here. But you should also balance that with the sense throughout history that whenever Christians are that comfortable, it's also that hard. It's usually people in persecuted nations people in impoverished nations that experience the most revivals. Why? Because they recognize their own desperation. And it's not a guilt trip. It doesn't mean you need to be impoverished or you need to move to like a poverty third world country like Oxnard or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) This isn't going to them, so it's okay. It doesn't mean you need to feel guilt for the blessing that you have. It just means that you need to recognize that you're going to have a lot to fight through in order to be desperate, and it's only desperation that God rewards when it comes to revival. People move to places like this to enjoy themselves, not really to be inconvenienced. And we certainly don't want to be required to change anything in our life. If anything, we want everybody else to change. We want our situations to change. We want our families to change. We want our spouses to change. We want our kids to change. We want our jobs to change. We want everything to change except us. But change happens when the Holy Spirit falls afresh upon sinful individuals. Our problem is we want the blessing without the change in lifestyle. But revival, by definition, is change. In 1904, a man by the name of Evan Roberts was a part of a prayer meeting himself. Found himself with a group of people crying out to the Lord, wanting a similar thing that people throughout history have wanted. Found himself repeating this prayer. Bend us, Lord. Bend us. Bend us. And this became the rallying cry of the church. Bend us. I don't know if it was 
specific call of the Holy Spirit coming upon Evan Roberts in that moment, but he all of a sudden, out of nowhere, changed his prayer. He began to say, no, bend me. Bend me. And the spirit of the living God fell on Evan Roberts and a group of people in Wales. This became known as the Welsh Revival. Wales has experienced more subsequent revivals than any nation in history. It has so fashioned their social life and culture that they can't experience Welsh culture apart from the revivals that have happened throughout their history. And many revivals that we have experienced in the United States and abroad have been affected by or started by that little country. You know what happened out of that revival in, uh, in 1904? People started getting a sense of their sin and a sense of God, God's holiness. And when those two got smashed together, they fell on their knees in repentance and asked for a holy outpouring of God's blessing. You know what happened then? People started to repent. It was said that crime was reduced so much in those little towns that Evan Roberts lived in that police started to get laid off. There was just nothing to punish. It was said that alcoholics got saved from their alcoholism and everybody just stopped drinking all at once to such an extent that all the taverns went bankrupt. The police got laid off, taverns went bankrupt. Get this, I didn't believe this when I read it. But this is, in, this is in the history books. There was a huge coal mining industry in Wales, at, at least in, in these towns. It was said that the, uh, the mules that the coal miners were using to haul up coal immediately became unresponsive to the coal miners because they didn't recognize the coal miners. They stopped swearing and abusing the mules. And when this happened, they began to be unresponsive to the coal miners, and the coal mine all, all of a sudden shut down. Do you see what happens here? Now, I am not advocating that we do away with the police force. That is absolutely not what I'm saying. Nor am I saying that alcohol is bad. If you question that, listen to my sermon, The Christian and Alcohol. It was really good. Check it out. I'm not saying any of those things. All I'm saying is that when revival happens, it shakes things up. Are you ready to be shaken up? It's more than just an emotional outbreak. It is an uncomfortable stripping away. I've heard of uh, revivals happening in history in which people, uh, shop owners would close down their shop because they were so desperate to be in the presence of God and they would do that for three days. The economy just tanked in their city because none of the business owners went to work. I'm not saying you need to close your business or stop going to work either. I'm just saying revival's crazy. Are we sure we want it? Because if we do, things will get shaken up. We'll be changed. Our city will be changed and formed for the glory of God. And we'll never want to look back again. Elmer Towns. And I quote, when most people pray for revival, they are probably asking for a wonderful experience at church next Sunday at 11 a.m. <laughs> yeah, me too. But revival is more than a Sunday morning experience. 
When you pray for revival, you're asking God for life-shaking experiences that will cost you plenty. It's agonizing because in revival, you become terrorized over your sin and you repent deeply. It's consuming because in revival, you have no time for hobbies, for chores around the house, for work, for sleep. (laughs) Sounds like having a kid. (laughs) Revival crashes your day timer. It interrupts TV times. It demands your full attention and it wears you out. Usually when we pray for revival, we're telling God, sick them on the bad guys. Little do we realize that revival begins with us, the people of God. Revival is the reviving of the soul to be more like God and less like ourselves. And it always seems to start not with them, but with Lord. As a psalmist, as King David would pray, examine my heart and see if there's any wayward way in me. And God is always pleased and delighted to give us the answer to that prayer. It just usually comes down to whether we actually want that to happen. If you're unsure of whether you want it or not, let me further terrify you by telling you what it's going to cost you. It's going to cost all of your priorities. Revival will require you to refocus all of your priorities. You should ask these questions of yourself. If you're the one saying, I want God to pour himself out on my city, well, ask yourself first, what are your chief ambitions in life? What's most important to you? Do you find your priorities being driven by the kingdom of God? Or is it just something on the second shelf? An important thing, but not a paramount thing. Let me tell you that if God is merely an appetizer, we will not receive the delicacies of the king's table. If you're satisfied with crumbs, you will never work up an appetite for the main course. You will be satisfied with crumbs. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Why be satisfied with crumbs? Our eyes then need to be open to an eternity. Leonard Ravenhill, God bless him, hungered for the same thing. He once wrote, oh, that believers would become eternity conscious. If we could live every moment of every day under the eye of God, if we did every act in light of the judgment seat, if we sold every article in the light of the judgment seat, if we prayed every prayer in the light of the judgment seat, if we tithed all of our possessions in light of the judgment seat, if we preachers prepared every sermons with one eye on damned humanity and the other on the judgment seat, then we would have a Holy Ghost revival that would shake this earth and that in no time at all would liberate millions of precious souls. But it's gonna cost you all your priorities. It's also going to cost you your lifestyle. You're not just going to have to refocus your priorities, but you're going to have to realign your lifestyle. Doesn't mean you have to stop what you're doing and become a monk. That's not what I'm saying, or a clergy. Just means you're going to have to look at everything through the lens of the kingdom of God. We should be aligning our life with what God loves. There's a way to do what you do throughout the week, the way that God 
loves. There's a way to do it that honors the expanding kingdom of God. And since he's reviving us to be like what he loves. And often a revival will change the spiritual landscape and climate. And we've got to be ready if he's calling us to do that. During a Azusa Street revival, during a tumultuous time of race relations in America, a very profound thing happened in the early days of the Azusa revival. The services were quickly filled with both black and white worshipers seeking both salvation and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it took on a multiracial character. In 1904 and 1906, that was unheard of. One white preacher in the South commented, the color line was washed away in the blood. But some people didn't like it, go figure, and they fought against it. And they fought, and they fought, and they fought. Until what inevitably happened is that that powerful expansion that occurred from a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit resulted in different denominations to form, uh, that formed what uh, was, they, they began to embrace their former racial barriers. And so what came out of Azusa Street Revival was the black churches and the white churches and this church and that church. They went back to those things, something that in many places still exists today. And that baffles my mind because it seemed that the spirit of God being poured out was accomplishing what nothing and no one else could. No legislation, no bluegrass movement, no speech, only the Holy Spirit being poured out on a hungry people begin to change the tone and tenor, begin to remove the sickness and the disease of racism, and it just began to happen until the people of God fought against what he wanted to do. And he let them. For some of those people, it was uncomfortable and perhaps painful, but that's what revival is. It's painful because we often need purging, but it results in an expression of the kingdom of God. One person wrote, there's no one more beautiful than the one who is broken. Stubbornness and self-love give way to the beauty in one who has been broken by God. I often find myself understanding this at least on a slightly deeper level when, I, when we had to move from house to house a couple times. And you know that feeling, that awful feeling when you have to move everything. It's like the worst thing ever. And we keep a pretty clean house. We keep our, our, our rooms clean. But there's this time when you're moving everything. You just take everything out and then you bring it back in. The things are cleaner than they've ever been taking everything out, you're looking for things left over, you're sweeping it, you're going in corners that were covered in furniture, you're rearranging furniture, and then you're bringing back in what needs to be there. And that's, the, that's revival, you know? It's God removing all the stuff that he doesn't need, rearranging the furniture and replacing it with all the stuff that he loves. Or as Peter described, being refined by fire, and as a result, resulting in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If we don't notice that we have these things, hatred for sin, a love for difficult people, a pursuit of holiness, an increase of love, a desire for the word of God, a desire for his kingdom, then our prayer should be, 
revive us again. Lastly, if you see in your own life that you have none of those things or you don't have those things as much as you would like, don't trip out. Pray, Holy Spirit, revive us again. Prayers of desperation always seem to be at the center of revival. You know why? Because I am not any of these characteristics as much as I would like to be. Sure, I'm more holy than I was five years ago, but I'm not as holy as I would like to be. I hate sin more than I did before I was saved, but I don't hate it as much as I do, or as much as I would like to. The list goes on. I am not any of these things as I would like to be. When I pray for revival, I am praying for God to make me like those things. And so you have to understand what it is that you're asking because he's gonna do that. He's gonna shake what's unnecessary in your life even though you might be clinging to it. He's gonna rearrange furniture in your life, the furniture in your heart and the furniture of your, in your lifestyle. He's gonna to begin to prune dead branches, even the branches that you hang your dirty laundry on. He's gonna cut those off. But if you're willing to submit to that, and that's all that he requires, a broken and contrite heart saying, do with me and us what you will. Revive us again. The outpouring of God upon us as a church in the city of Santa Barbara will be unimaginable. We will experience the presence of God together. We will experience the weight of his holiness falling upon us. We will experience conviction of sin. We will experience the aroma of conversion as people we never thought would be saved rush into the fold. And we will experience love that prevails. If anything about what I said this morning resonates with you or you want it to resonate with you, let the prayer of this church be today and forevermore. Lord, revive us again. Heavenly Father, as we come before you today in worship, we ask that very thing, that you would revive our hearts. And perhaps right now it's more appropriate to pray that we're not even sure what it is that we want to desire half the time. So we just ask that you would give us the desire to be revived, that you would give us the desire that moves men and women to pray prayers of desperation. We pray that you would open our eyes to eternity, that you would put eternity on our hearts and you would cause us to see even for the first time for some of us something beyond ourselves and our own life, that you would whet our appetites for the kingdom of God. And God, I just want to pray for a holy excitement to rush through this church as you begin to move in our midst and through the city that we would sit back and say, wow, God does love Santa Barbara, and he loves me. God, revive our hearts for your glory. We just pray together with King David that we, our, our, our flesh yearns for you and our souls thirst for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water, but we have seen, we have seen you in the sanctuary to behold your power and your glory, and we declare that your loving kindness is better than life. So we ask for an extra portion of your Holy Spirit to fall afresh upon Reality Santa Barbara and all of your churches in the city of Santa Barbara that Santa Barbara might know that there is a God and we might fall on our knees in unison together and worship.
Jesus' name, amen.